0: Well turn if you would to the book of Revelation, in case you can 't find it, I like to say what it 's right before and after it is right after jude and it 's right before the back cover of your Bible. Um, there is a handout this morning, and uh, if you don 't have it, I think uh, we 've got some more copies of it, so you know raise your hands, get attention, and we 'll get you one of those but um, revelation, and, and let's just get this out of the way early, it's Revelation, singular. Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that was called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. As we begin a new service schedule, which yet remains to be seen whether it will be permanent or not, the schedule change does coincide with the opportunity to begin a new study, and after it was suggested to me, from several sources, that Revelation would be a good study. I've reluctantly agreed to that. So let me start by explaining why I say I'm reluctant, which, by the way, has to be... That, that sounds like the worst introduction to any sermon series in the history of Christianity, right? Let me tell you why I wanted to do something else. But there's a few reasons. First off, we can have an unhealthy... Preoccupation with unfulfilled prophecy, and it leads us to some fanciful conclusions. Christian history is riddled with Bible scholars who think that they've got it all figured out. My favorite example might be a man named Martin of Tours who wrote, There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Now, if you're not familiar with Martin of Tours, it's because he died in 397. Not, thir- not, not 1937, 397. I'm going to consider this series a success if by the end of it, I have convinced you that the meaning of Revelation is not primarily to tell us about the future. It is prophetic to be sure, but predictive prophecy is not what revelation intends to reveal. The first five words of this book proclaim it to be the revelation of Jesus Christ. If if it's the Lord's will from today and forward for the rest of my life, I've got nothing to, to teach to you except how to know Jesus better, how to love Jesus more, and how to obey him more completely. Think of it this way. If we hold a high view of Scripture and really agree with Paul that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and righteous instruction, then Revelation can't simply be only about the future. If we hold a correct view of Scripture, then we'll understand that by learning from Revelation, it's going to change us today. It's going to furnish us for good works today. And lo and behold, we find that very affirmation at the beginning and end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, verse 3, you can see there, Blessed is he that reads, and they which hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Right There is a call to obedience at the beginning of this book. And at the end, in Revelation 22, verse 7, it says, Behold, I come quickly, blessed is he that keeps the sayings of, this proph- of the prophecy of this book. You understand that means that for the past 2,000 years, Christian history is filled with disciples of Jesus who are either being obedient or disobedient, to the lessons that this book teaches. It's meant to change its readers in the present. That's what it's intended to do. Not just about the future. And if we come to this just because we want to learn more about the future, then we aren't really interested in what Revelation has to teach us. So that's my first caution. Second, I hesitated starting with Revelation because it's written by the Apostle John in the upcoming service at 1130. We're going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are written by the Apostle John on Wednesday nights as we're studying through the, the life of Jesus in chronological order. We've reached the upper room discourse, so we're going to be hanging out in John's gospel for a while. With all there is to choose in Scripture, this is kind of taking a fairly unbalanced approach. I mean, we're getting a lot of the Apostle John right now. And if I could just add this, if I'm being honest, I love him, but I'm not convinced he loves me. It's, for some reason, I've been opening what John writes, and it's, he's been beating me up. It's like he holds me on the ground and, and bullies me. My third concern, please turn with me to the end of Revelation in chapter 22. Warning, spoiler alerts at the end of Revelation. Revelation 22, I want you to look at verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. If we take that warning seriously, and and I do, then coming to Revelation places two solemn burdens on us. Number one, don't add to this book do not read into revelation things that simply are not there and number two don't take away from this book don't skip over stuff just because it's hard now i don't believe this is a warning that's only true about revelation i think god is is jealous over all of scripture in this way i think that because a similar warning shows up in in deuteronomy Why didn't any of y'all ask for a series on Deuteronomy? Seriously, I don't want to get this wrong. For a pastor to teach something that the Bible doesn't teach is the equivalent of getting in the pulpit and lying. And for a pastor to ignore something that the Bible does teach is the equivalent of getting in the pulpit and stealing from you. God's going to hold people accountable. That's reason enough to to not thoughtlessly tread into any portion of the scripture, much less revelation. And yet, despite those hesitations, here we are, solely for the reason I noted before that all scripture is profitable for us. There's no portion of God's word that will fail to be a, a blessing, will fail to be a worthwhile study. And so, as... I attempt to introduce it today. I just want you to understand this morning is going to be more teachy than it is preachy. I want us to have a background of the book in mind as we launch into this study. So the first thing to understand is who the author is, who's writing this. And the answer to that, I believe, is John the Apostle. The writer calls himself John John. Five different times. In, in the very first verse, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel or his messenger unto his servant John. In verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. In verse 9, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation... You get to the end in verse in chapter 21, verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city in chapter 22, verse 8. I, John, saw these things and, and heard these things. It sounds a lot like the beginning of his letters, right? I, I saw it, I heard it, I, I touched him. Now that alone doesn't settle the matter because John is a fairly common name in the first century and What we don't see in Revelation is any indication where the writer calls himself an apostle, nor does he follow the example of the Gospels and refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. However, this John does write as if he is well known to the readers. And certainly, that fits what we know about John's ministry. Him being the author fits here. Traditionally, we understand that John in his old age, ended up ministering in the city of Ephesus. Look at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos, if you look at your map, is a little crescent-shaped island. It's about four miles wide, at most ten miles long. It's incredibly rocky, and it is located in the Aegean Sea, about 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. The Roman authorities in the first century throughout Asia Minor would use Patmos as a kind of penal colony. So John, being in Ephesus and ministering, was banished to the island of Patmos. And that fits with what we know about John's history. He was banished there, he says, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. His his preaching frustrated some authorities. Additionally, as he writes to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor, what's the first church to receive his letter? Ephesus. Ephesus. There's also some internal evidence within Revelation that would suggest it's the Apostle John. Back in the Old Testament in Zechariah 12.10, there is a prophecy that looks forward to the uh, ministry of Jesus, and it predicts this day when they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. You'll see that alluded to in verse 7 in chapter 1 here in Revelation. But the writer here in Revelation doesn't quote Zechariah quite exactly the way it was written in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In fact, the only other time where we get it worded the way that it is in verse 7 here is actually in John's Gospel in John 19, verse 37. We know John wrote his Gospel and now... He's writing this phrase in an unusual way, and he's the only one we've seen do that before. So the earliest Christian writers within the the first and second century almost uniformly, not unanimously, but almost uniformly attribute this to the Apostle John saying that he wrote it from the island of Patmos after being exiled from Ephesus During the reign of an emperor named Domitian, and we'll talk about him in just a second. The time of the writing, somewhere between 90 and 95 AD, is a good estimate. Probably closer to 95 than 90 later on seems more likely. There are some folks who want to date this sooner, but it seems to me that That is particularly an attempt to put it before 70 AD for some reasons that this is how they want to interpret it. By the last decade of the first century, there was a Roman emperor named Domitian that had assumed power. His reign was marked by two great trespasses against Christianity. First, he insisted that the emperor of the Roman Empire was divine and should be worshipped. And you can imagine why he did this. Oh, turns out that's me. You have to worship me. Second, when Christians rejected that command, they they were persecuted fiercely. And because of this, when you think about that, because of this, the earliest readers who first received this book would have been struck With the practicality of warnings of a coming day when there would be an evil world power who would rise and demand that you worship him, right? They they would have been experiencing something very similar to that. Further, the book is clear that the earliest audience in the churches receiving this book experienced persecution for their refusal to worship false gods. Think about it. John has been banished to the island of Patmos. In chapter 2, verse 10, as Jesus speaks to the church at Smyrna, it's told to endure the, the coming suffering, even imprisonment. In chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamos, and he tells the church at Pergamos that within them was A man named Antipas, who was his faithful martyr. He died for the faith. In chapter 3, verse 10, the church at Philadelphia is warned of a a time of temptation that's going to test the world. And so the the later date for this, somewhere closer to 95 AD, is very likely. If you want to turn your notes over, I want to talk about the symbolism of Revelation and and literal interpretation, because as you know, I have tried to to be very adamant that we have to take the word of God literally. And to say that we accept the book of Revelation to be literal does not deny that there is symbolism present. I mean, you read through Revelation, there's there's dragons and angels and, and beasts and mysterious riders on horseback. There's a prostitute with prostitute daughters. There's a woman who's clothed with the sun. There's locusts with human faces. Obviously, there is some daunting stuff in there. And we're going to deal with those things during this series. But as I've argued that we take the Bible literally, it must be said that by taking it literally does not mean that we ignore when symbolism is present. Sometimes, sometimes, that symbolism can be easily identified, right? The, there's, there's four horses in Revelation. One is white and conquers. One is red and brings war. One's black and it's a harbinger of economic collapse. The last one is pale or sickly and it's bringing about famine and death, right? It's not hard to analyze that symbolism. Sometimes Revelation uses symbolism and thankfully, <laughs> Thankfully, it self-defines those symbols for us. For example, here in Revelation 1, John sees a vision of Jesus, or more specifically, he, he hears a voice behind him in verse 11, a voice defining itself as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and telling John to write down what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And hearing that voice, John turns and sees a vision of Jesus in verse 12. Look at verse 12 and 13. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. By the way, that's also a good indication. This is the Apostle John writing because he recognized who it was he was looking at. Jesus, standing in the middle, he says, of seven golden candlesticks. So the word there is lampstands, and we'll talk about that later on in the series. But that seems obviously symbolic. And given that seven churches were, were just described, we might assume there's a connection, and the symbolism gets self-defined for us right in the book. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. Right Now we don't have to wonder what that symbolism is. We're told what that symbolism is. It's self-defining. When we get to Revelation 12, we see there's a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. But we don't have to wonder what that represents because in chapter 12, verse 9, we're told that's the old serpent called the devil and Satan. So sometimes the symbolism is self-defining. Other times it's not. What we can say in regard to the symbolism and, and taking a literal approach to it is taking the text literally means understanding that some things are intended symbolically. We can be certain that that's true because John tells us that in this book. So, for example, look at Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. He writes and said, I saw another sign in heaven. Seven angels having the seven final plagues. Back in chapter 12, he writes, There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And a couple of verses later, there appeared another wonder in heaven, that great dragon. Those words, sign and wonder, are the same Greek word, semion, and it means a marker, an, an indicator, a symbol. I want to show you where else that same word is used. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and Simeon signified it by his angel unto his servant John. The very first sentence of the book, we're told up front, this is a message from God that is sent and it is communicated through signs, through symbols. So each time we see a symbol, like a, a locust with a face, we have to take literally the word of God, but John's telling us a literal approach to it is to understand there are things in here we're only going to see through symbols. Symbols. These symbols, by the way, extend past you know, word pictures in the book like locusts with faces or women clothed with the sun. It even goes all the way into the numbers that are used in the book. Like if you look at your notes, the, the very end of it, it's generally understood numbers in scripture can be symbolic and the number seven is significant for, for completeness. If you look at your outline... You'll see that number seven shows up repeatedly. It's not an accident. So we're going to have to grapple with the symbolism of Revelation. And that's appropriate since it is a prophetic book. If you remember, we had to do the same thing back when we went through Daniel, a book which bears more than a passing resemblance to some of the things that are said in Revelation. Actually, that prophetic message that was presented symbolically many times through the Old Testament prophets is vital to understanding Revelation because, for all of Revelation's focus on future events, there is no New Testament book that comes close to Revelation for the number of Old Testament quotations, the number of times it cites the Old Testament as a reference. We would think the most, most of the Old Testament references might come from Matthew. He's got 92 of them. The book of Hebrews has 102 of them. Revelation has over 300 Old Testament references. You have to understand Revelation through that lens of Old Testament prophecy. All right, in your notes, interpreting the text throughout history, there have been various approaches to the book of Revelation and studying this. I, I thought about the movie A Christmas Story, where there's a little boy, Ralphie, who checks the mail every day for his little orphan Annie decoder device. He wanted to interpret the secret messages that came at the end of his favorite radio show. And of course, he was greatly disappointed when the secret messages turned out to be a commercial, right? Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have to send away box tops for a secret decoder ring. Our understanding of individual passages in Revelation is going to depend on which interpretive approach we apply to the book. And if we use the wrong decoder ring, if we use the wrong interpretive approach, we're going to end up with some equally disappointing results. There are four widely used approaches to Revelation. And I want you to hear what they are and which one we'll use. Preterism says that the symbolism of the book of Revelation is only about contemporary events in John's day or the immediate future during John's lifetime the book becomes a story about the defeat of religious and political opponents to Christianity so the religious opponents would be the Jews the political opponents would be the Roman Empire That is why they generally set an early date for the book of Revelation before 70 AD because they think the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD marks the fulfillment of all of the prophecy of Revelation. Basically, preterism argues that John wrote prophetically about only things in the immediate future to him and so everything in Revelation is long past to us. The evil world rulers rising up in Revelation would be the Roman emperor. And they, they support this by pointing to verse 1 in chapter 1, which says these things must shortly come to pass. And ends in, in, in chapter 22, verse 10, by saying the time is at hand, it's close. And so preterism holds that all the prophecy of Revelation is long past, including any tribulation Revelation describes, that's already happened. A second coming of Jesus that Revelation describes, that's already happened. The problem with preterism, and there's a lot of problems, is that it ignores the general tenor of the entire New Testament, which says that the birth, uh, the birth and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the last days. Peter used that argument all the way back in Acts chapter 2 saying that the last days had begun to be fulfilled and that in those last days, he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The writer of Hebrews says essentially the same thing. He says God spoke in the past in many times in many ways, but God now in these last days has spoken unto us by his son. So these last days are right now in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And the return of Jesus Christ is something that we're still looking forward to. If the last days are over, then the hope of the gospel is gone. I personally, you should know, I have a very high tolerance level for almost every view of Revelation, <clears throat> I don't think it's wise, biblically or practically, to be dogmatic about specifics of unfulfilled prophecy. If for no other reason than we can see prophecy in the Old Testament that God has fulfilled in some surprising ways. That being said, I have a fairly low tolerance for Preterism, because it removes the hope of all Christians. Arguing the second coming has already taken place. So essentially, if you believe that Jesus is coming back, I'm okay with you. But if you tell me that that hope is gone, then, then we've got a problem. Okay? <clears throat> so preterism is not a view we'll use. Historicism Historicism argues that the message of Revelation is not all about John's immediate future, but that it represents like this arc of Christian history as God plans to unfold it throughout time. So the symbolism in the book outlines the the course of history from the day of Pentecost until the return of Jesus. So for example, the letters, the, the seven churches don't picture literal churches, according to historicism, but it describes church ages. Uh, the first age, Ephesus, becomes the time of Christianity leaving its first love, as the church at Ephesus said, was said to done. They, they'll even start assigning dates. So, for example, they'll say the Ephesian age runs from 53 to 170 A.D. Or if you open up a different commentator, he'll say it ran from 30 to 150 A.D. The problem with historicism, saying that that revelation unfold, unfolds the arc of history, is that that view of how we interpret it has to change as times change. Right? Everybody sees themselves in the final days, in the last days. And so the interpretation changes over time. So, for example, this view was very popular during the Reformation in the 1500s. So the message of Revelation was applied to say this describes these 1500 years of human history up until the present. But now, here we are 500 years later. And so we have to, it's almost like a rubber band, right? Revelation is describing 1,500 years of human history. And then a couple hundred years later, it's describing 1,700 1700 years of human history. What happens if you keep pulling on a rubber band? Like this method of interpretation snapped a long time ago. There's not much way to get around the fact that John is writing to literal churches. That's why I wanted you to have the map in your notes. If you look at that map, as he writes to these seven churches in Asia Minor, he writes to them in order as someone who would be a messenger takes, a, takes this document and goes down the Roman road from one church to another in this arcing pattern. That seems pretty literal to me. These aren't church ages. These are individual churches. And so when we go through the messages to those churches, there's going to be some hard lessons in those messages that are for us and they're meant for us. If we use historicism, then we can just say, well, that, that letter to Ephesus, it doesn't mean anything to us because that was back for that age that was a long time ago. Instead, every one of the letters that Jesus has for these churches is going to have a lesson for us. And if the, if the shoe fits, we're going to have to put it on and wear it. But using his, historicism as a means to understand Revelation would have been meaningless to the original audience, right? And that's one thing we always have to remember is how would the people who first read this understand it? And I assure you that nobody who first read this would have said, well, This is God's unfolding plan for the arc of 2,000 years of human history until Beverly Manor decides to pick it up and learn about it in 2022. They just couldn't have understood it that way. The next approach is idealism. Idealism uses an allegorical approach to all of the symbols, and so the whole sequence becomes the eternal struggle of good versus evil or God's kingdom versus man's wicked kingdom. Idealism does not equate the message of Revelation with any historical events or persons, past, present, or future. Now, in fairness, there is symbolism in Revelation, right? We talked about that. But idealism even takes the straightforward message of Revelation, in which there are no symbols, and explains even those portions symbolically. It's sole focus is in finding timeless truths with no specific promises or predictions at all. As with any portion of scripture, the trouble with spiritualizing or allegorizing everything is we just can't know when we're right. It's like trying to decode a message without the secret decoder ring. The greatest problem with idealism is not what it accepts as true, because I agree, there are timeless truths throughout Revelation. The biggest problem with idealism is what it rejects, saying Revelation has no specific people, specific places, specific events. It clearly does. Futurism, this is the position I hold, and it's certainly going to be the way we unfold Revelation in this series, for clarity's sake, futurism does not say that all of Revelation is future to us. Just most of it. Futurism is the only view that actually applies the kind of decoder device that's actually in the text of Revelation itself. Look at Revelation chapter one, verse 9. Nineteen, sorry. Chapter one, verse nineteen. Jesus tells John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That actually develops an entire outline for the book of Revelation for us. The things which you have seen, past tense, chapter 1, John saw a vision, and so we read in chapter 1 about that vision that he saw, the things which are. Right? The, the present in John's time, circumstances with those seven churches in Asia, chapters 2 and 3 give us the, the present for those churches and how the Lord sees their activities, and then the things which will be hereafter. That's the future. Chapter 4, forward, reveals God's plan for world history. The futurist view sees Revelation Unfolding God's plan for the culmination of human history. There's going to be a wicked antichrist. There's going to be a great tribulation of seven years. There's going to be a return of Jesus after that in order to rapture his saints. Christ is going to establish a thousand year reign on earth. And finally, there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And there's going to be the, the disposition of all souls for eternity. Now, not every person who holds the futurist view is going to agree on that order of events that I just gave you. Right? There are, we, we have to understand, with even within this interpretive view, there's going to be disagreements where we can lovingly disagree. But, let me just make a couple more disclaimers before we're, we're done. First off, when you have heard me preach through other books... Very often you'll have heard me point out a verse or a phrase or a section and I'll say, well, this has a couple of possible meanings. It might be that John's saying this and it might be that John's saying that and I'll, I'll give you the implications of both and tell you which one I, I think is accurate. Just understand, for everyone's sanity, I'm not going to do that in this series. right? You don't want me to try to point out every every Potential meaning in the book of Revelation as different people see it. Right? You you don't want that. I don't want to do that. Second, in this process, I'm going to have to be upfront with you about the things that I don't know and when I don't know them. There's going to be times where I will say, um, this one stumps me. I, I don't know. And you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to lovingly accept that from me, I hope. What I've decided in the course of hearing plenty of other teaching and preaching is that when there is a difficult passage, you've got two choices. You can either become very adamant and certain about your position, or you can say, "I I think this is what it means, but I might be wrong. When you have that kind of inner uncertainty, it it displays itself outwardly either in immature overconfidence or calming wisdom. And I'm going to aim at the latter of the two. And here's the benefit of taking the view of Revelation that we will, holding the futurist view. It takes literally the message of Revelation it takes it in a way that would have made sense to the original audience, and the application of it holds the same sort of tension for us today as it would have for the original audience, right? When the original readers read, these things must shortly come to pass. We will read, these things must shortly come to pass, and we're going to view it the same way they would have. That doesn't mean that every You know, every global pandemic, every act of war, every newspaper headline, every Time magazine cover story is going to be understood as the sign of the impending apocalypse. Instead, it simply assures us that no matter what it is we see happening around us in this world or what kind of catastrophic events might befall us, there is not one thing falling outside of the plan of God. He is always in control. And so seeing that past, present, future outline, it fits not only with what Jesus said to John as he said, you write these things down, past, present, and future, but also it fits with the Lord's claims, which we read a couple of different times this morning in our text. Verse eight, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and is to come. When is the Lord Jesus in control? (laughs) Past, present, and future. He's, He's sovereign over everything. And so this book is going to inform us on our attitude and behavior in the present. I mean, how would you live differently today if you were really certain that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Our view of this book needs to be that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ meant to be practical for us right now. So that when we read, these things must shortly come to pass, then we can answer along with John's conclusion in Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus, right, we're we're ready for it, we're hoping for it, we're living for it.